Hey, Kingdom Roots friends. Great to be with you today. On the episode, we have the continuation of the conversation we started last week where Scott fields the questions on his book, The Blue Parakeet, kind of a Ask Scott live edition for you. But before we jumped there, I wanted to let you know about one of our favorite times of year that we have coming up here at Northern. It's the Taste of Northern Week, and it's going to be February 4th through the 7th. Great opportunity to check out just what class is like at Northern. And it doesn't matter where you're from, if you're in the Chicago area and want to stop by at the Lyle campus, that would be great. Or if you'd like to join us and experience our Northern Live online learning platform, we'd love to have you. That's how I'm um, taking classes right now, and I'd love to be in class with you with this the class that I'm going through with Scott right now. Um, so yeah, hope you get a chance to check that out. That's online. You can learn more at seminary.edu slash taste. Again, that's seminary.edu slash taste. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have questions that Scott fields from his book, The Blue Parakeet. I realized I should have given the context of our church before I started um bringing people in. So I'm on staff at an international church in the Netherlands, and we have people from many, many different countries. Uh, So this particular class had students, men and women in their 20s, mostly from India and uh, England and uh, the Netherlands and Romania and Ireland and Portugal. Am I missing anybody? And it was quite a diverse group of students. So it's it's fun to talk biblical interpretation with not only other white Americans, which is the context I come from, but to hear how people from different cultures have interpreted the Bible and how it's taught. So that's been a lot of fun as well. So that's- these, But these people are all in Maastricht with you, right? Yes. So okay. um, the people in my class- like Rosie's yeah. home on vacation. Rosie's home on vacation. Simona's about to fly to Romania tomorrow. Um, and then others- have already left and gone various places as well. Okay. okay. Very good. Simona, do you want to ask a question? So I'm Simona and I was born and raised in Romania and I moved to the Netherlands four years ago for my studies. I've studied psychology and cognitive neuroscience, uh, which I just graduated from a couple months ago. Um, I grew up in the church and I grew up um, being thought that the Bible is an instruction manual, sort of that we get our yeah concept of what is right and wrong, what is sin from the Bible, and um, now asking more questions and, and looking into all these various interpretations that you also talk about in the book, uh, I start to wonder then, as a regular person, not maybe having the resources or the time to look into commentaries about uh, context and cultural diversity and Hebrew and Greek and so on. Um, How do we actually decide what is sin, what is not? Um, Good question. I have uh, one of my favorite students that I ever taught was from Romania. Radu Georgitsa. 
he's back there a little bit now, back and forth, and, and he also lives in England some. So um, I think we need to start with Jesus and not, uh, in other words, I don't think we need to spend three years reading the Old Testament before we can get to Jesus and Paul or Peter and James and John. But rather, we start there, and Jesus will draw us back to the Old Testament, where we'll dip in to the law to understand how that worked, and then we come forward with Jesus. But the crystallization of the ethic and the way of life, what is sin and what is goodness, in the Christian tradition starts with who Jesus is, how he lived, and what he taught his followers to do. That's where I think we have to begin if we're going to talk about a Christian ethic. But over time, what we learn about Jesus is he will draw us back to the Old Testament and we'll become familiar with the Old Testament, um, a little bit more familiar so that we can understand even more of what he's saying. Maybe a follow-up question that's a little more broad is, how can someone who is a layperson and doesn't have the hours to devote to academic theology how can they begin to better understand how to interpret the Bible? I think, uh, number one, they have to read the Bible, some on their own. That's, that's the starting. The second thing is, I think they need to go to a church and participate in a group that cares about the Bible. And over a decade, they can really grow in their understanding of the Bible. And so it illustrates the importance of teachers and preachers and pastors and fellow teachers, fellow Bible readers to help us understand the Bible is to, is to listen to how what they hear and what they've learned. I'm amazed at what people pick up in uh, five years of a home Bible study. Some of it goofy, but a lot of it really good. And then I would say, read good books. So uh, pay attention to people that you trust, who know how to read the Bible well and say, um, Give me a book to read this year that will challenge me and help me grow in my understanding of the Bible. Can you recommend a couple of those books? Um, th this is a dangerous game because it depends on um, how much time a person has, how much education they have, and uh, how, much, uh, how much they can handle. Um, I often encourage people to read, uh, depending on their level, Tom Wright's book called The Challenge of Jesus. I think it's a really fine book to get going on understanding Jesus in this historical world in light of the narrative. For those who have more time, his book, The New Testament and the People of God, very long, but it's brilliant and puts a lot of things together. Those are those are two that I recommend. And then there's introductions to the Bible. David David De Silva's new big fat introduction to the New Testament is a wonderful book that just brings so many things together for people who are. Let's say you're reading Romans, you open that up. He's going to give you all kinds of suggestions about reading Romans and some bibliography of other things to read. Would Gordon Fee's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth fall into that category of a good starting place? That's about method, yes. Uh, and that's a, that's a really good book with Douglas Stewart, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's one of the 
best-selling Christian books on how to read the Bible in history. I know that Zondervan on their Textbook Plus website also has uh, an instructor's manual and teaching resources for that book because it's the one they gave me as a sample. They said, basically reproduce this for Blue Parakeet. Um, so they've got, again, great teaching resources if someone wanted to teach a class on uh, how to read the book. Are those resources free? They are. Um, you do have to Sign up. You create an account on their Textbook Plus website, and then it's all free to download. Nope. Okay. It's pretty cool. Um, Renska, do you want to ask a question? Sure. Um, I first introduce myself. My name is Renska. I'm from the Netherlands, the northern half. I moved to Maastricht to study. And I'm currently serving as one of the small leaders in the International Church. So the question I'll you, Scott, is in your book, The Parakeet, in chapter six, you talk about having a relational approach to biblical interpretation and that we should see the Bible as a letter from God to us and that we should see the authors having a conversation with God. So. If I'm trying to explain this to my non-Christian friends or those who just became Christians, they have yet to have this personal relationship with God. How would you explain them or how would you tell them to approach this biblical interpretation? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Blue Parakeet, as you can probably tell, Renska, is written for Christians, uh, people who are believers who are reading the Bible. And so there is a believing uh, an assumption of belief and faith to uh, to believe that God is speaking through this Bible. For those who are non-Christians, I would encourage them not to begin with Exodus or Leviticus, although they can be really fun. I would I would encourage them to uh, begin, say, with the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke or one of the Gospels, and ask them what the who. You know, what they think of Jesus, who do they think he is? I think it is through Jesus that people are introduced to a personal God and to a personal relationship with God. And I think that's the uh, that would be the starting point for me. I like to engage people in conversation about what Jesus said, what he did, and who they think he is. Uh, that the question is, will you join our church or do you want to get saved is a bad question to begin with. You know, the old question that I grew up with, I'm 65, uh, is that you begin the conversation by asking people if they died, why they thought they should be uh, given access to heaven. I don't think that question works with people today. So, uh, and I think the gospels themselves encourage us to ask other questions. They encourage us to encounter Jesus and to ask questions. Who who do I think he is? Who is this guy? So that's where that's where I would begin. So to introduce someone to a relational approach to the Bible, first introduce them to a relationship with Jesus in the Bible, in the Gospels. Uh, yes, I would say introduce them to Jesus and let Jesus take care of the relational side. Mm -hmm. I found teaching uh, many uh, non-believing college students in my 17 years at North Park that many students really liked Jesus and were beginning to follow him, but would never have said they were Christian. 
were. More Christian than a lot of people you meet in churches because they, they really took Jesus seriously and were trying to live the way he taught. So I have with me here in my home tonight, my friend Jessica, who is on the leadership team of our church. And she is kindly letting me use her computer tonight since mine is broken. Uh, and Jessica hosts our class every week and feeds us and welcomes us in her home as we've gone through this course, which we really appreciated. Jessica said she was feeling too nervous to ask a question. So I'm going to I'm going to ask one of her questions for her, <laughs> which is um, and now I have to confess that I got myself in a little bit of trouble. Because as Scott knows, I recently got a tattoo uh, in Greek and I had to I, I made sure that it was spelled correctly in Greek before I got it. And it's the Greek word matetria, which is the feminine form of disciple. Um, so one of Jessica's young adult sons had been told not to get a tattoo. Until he was 21. Until he was 21, uh, but wanted to get one and apparently used the argument. But mom, Becky got a tattoo. <laughs> so I've, uh, I've been setting a bad example, apparently. But one of the issues uh, in patterns of discernment that you talk about in Blue Parakeet is um, figuring out which patterns of discernment we can use to understand how to live out the Bible today. So on the issue of tattoos from Leviticus, what kind of discernment principles would you use on how Christians should live that out today? <laughs> oh, with, the, with the mother present, you know, and, I, and I, I'm likely to get in trouble here. Um, tell you one thing in the whole Bible about tattoos, this old statement in the law, and it is, according to most people, it's about Pagan religious markings. It may have been scratches in the skin more than tattoos. So I would begin with that. And I would say that it probably has nothing whatsoever to do with tattoos that we're using today. All right. So that would be one point I would make, is that I don't think that that would become a necessary state, uh, a legal statement that we, we, we'd want to use. A second feature would be a larger theological platform for understanding bodies. If the body is being defaced, degraded, I remember being at an airport and I had never seen, a, this is a person who had nothing short of body modification. In his head was a metal plate that had spikes coming out of the top under the skin. I don't know how this happens, but it was it was really out there. And this guy had tattoos and earrings everywhere on his body. And I couldn't help but wonder why someone would do that much to their body. And so there's some body image issues that can be at work in tattoos. Some people use tattoos to hide who they are. That's not I don't think that's very Christian. When I grew up, of course, uh, the only people who had tattoos are what are people we called hoods, which if you're old enough, you know who Fonzie is on Happy Days, and he was a hood, but he was a very fancy looking hood. The hoods I knew were pretty tough and rough guys. They were the only ones who had tattoos. So at my church, uh, a tattoo was a sign of, of not being connected to the right people. 
and doing the wrong things. So uh, I would say first is that text in, in, the, in the law is of very little value, probably none. Second, I would say body image. The third thing is, if you're going to get tattoos, I think that they should be done for um, to convey a message to others and to yourself about what's important to you. So I have, uh, I, you know, I don't have a tattoo. I think uh, only yes. one person in our whole family has a tattoo. Um, and uh, she got it when she was pretty young. I, I would say that um, I've seen lots of tattoos that are valuable, but um, I'm, I'm with you as a mother, not till 21, but if it was a male, I would say until they're mature, uh, uh, which is different than with a female, because I taught college students. Um, and I would say uh, that it, it's permanent. It, it, it's something that you need to embrace that's going to be true for your whole life. And 16-year-olds don't know what that's about. So I don't think we have a narrative that incorporates how to read, uh, how, to, how to practice tattoos. Can you say a little bit more about the concept of patterns of discernment? Um, I found that to be one of the most useful parts of the book. What is that concept for biblical interpretation in a nutshell? The, the biggest concept is that if you read the Bible from beginning to end, and it takes a while to do this, but after a few times, it gets pretty easy or it gets easier. There are a lot of shifts and changes that occur. Even within the Old Testament law, whether you can boil a lamb at Passover or not is a debate within the Bible. So people have to get over the idea that everything written is for all time, for all people. That's just not the way the Bible operates. As the Bible goes along, discernments are being made about what's important, how to live. Paul gets into the Gentile world and Gentiles start believing the gospel. And now Paul is being pressured. Should Gentile converts follow the law? They have a big conference. Of nowhere they come up with four i mean i shouldn't say i don't know from leviticus 19 they come up with four things that gentiles should not do if they're living in the land one of the things that they decided i don't know how but it was very clearly decided is they decided that gentile converts did not have to be circumcised males did not have to be circumcised this is just unknown in Jewish tradition, because proselytes got circumcised. Male proselytes got circumcised, hence more female proselytes. So uh, they discerned that circumcision was something for Jewish Christians or Jews, but not for Gentile Christians. And that becomes a pattern, uh, an illustration of a pattern that as the gospel moves into new territories, Christians should wisely know their Bible and wisely render judgments together with one another on how we're going to live something out. That tradition of the Bible should not be violated, 
it can be expanded, modified, adjusted, um, but it would be foolish to think that all we have to do is consult Exodus or Leviticus or just the Sermon on the Mount. We want to watch how the Bible develops something. And I believe, for instance, slavery is, is a perfect example. Slavery is never condemned in the, in the Bible. Never really fully condemned. We, we have some very wonderful people who would like it to have been condemned and who like to teach that it was, but it wasn't. Because you can see Paul writing at the end of his life, it was in the later parts of the New Testament, that um, he has not, he does not think slavery is wrong. Uh, he'd like to see more slaves probably set free, but he doesn't think it's wrong. And yet today we all believe that slavery is wrong. So we have discerned because of the way the Bible begins to open up toward slavery and toward welcoming. Paul says, um, no longer as a slave, he says to Onesimus, but as a brother. And he says in Colossians chapter 4, written probably at the same time, uh, treat them equally. So we, we have the beginnings of transformation that did not occur within the New Testament. And that's a hint and a suggestion that there will be other transformations that we will have to pay attention to. And this is how the church has read the Bible for 2,000 years. It's exactly how they've read the Roman Catholic tradition. And uh, Renska is from Romania. Is that correct? Someone is from Romania. Renska is from the Netherlands. Who is from uh, Romania? Simona. The, uh, the Orthodox Church there has, you know, whether you like them or not, has an endless set of discernments that they've made over time. The church has always rendered judgment by discerning how best to live the gospel in a given situation with a presenting problem. There's nothing in the Bible about euthanasia. There's nothing in the Bible about nuclear warheads. There's, you know, there's nothing in the Bible about some of these things. We have to use our judgment. And I think that it's important that we don't all render the judgments by ourselves, but that we, we sit with other Christians and ponder different ways of looking at this question and come to mutually satisfying conclusions as we seek to, to be faithful as Christians in our world today. Do you agree with that, Becky? I do. Cherith V. Nordling, so I know you like Yes, I'm talking to Cherith tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to that. She's a fantastic professor. Um, so Matt is our pastor and uh, happens to be the only man in our class who's joining us tonight. We did have other men in the class, um, but Matt is on the call, and I would love to hear his question. My name is Matthew. I was born and raised in the Midwest of the U.S., but I spent a few years in the Virgin Islands, in the Caribbean, and then now I've been in the Netherlands about 10 years working in church stuff. Um, the Blue Parakeet is a lot about narrative and the Bible's narrative, so my question is more or less going to ask you for a story. Um, say, in many situations, if, if like a pastor reads a book, say the blue parakeet, gets excited about this, about the Bible's narrative, patterns of discernment, 
and then they want to bring that into the church, that's a hard thing to just walk in and be like, you've been reading the Bible one way, we're now all going to do it differently. You actually have to, to work a little bit to get people to, to change their minds. As you said in one of the earlier questions, well, someone get involved in that over a decade, how they grow. So what's a time you have seen it done well that uh, a church or a, a pastor has helped his church make a shift in how they view the Bible? Good one. This is a good one. I, I think the, uh, uh, it just depends who it is. A lot of times I get these questions from lay folks who don't have power and they want to see changes made in a church. And that's a different kind of strategy than if you're a leader in a church, which is a different kind of strategy than if you're the pastor of the church. Okay. So all those are going to be different. So let's just say you're the pastor of a church. The first thing you could do is preach in a more narrative framework. It's not hard to do, and people usually don't even know you're doing it. So you set a passage up when you're preaching through a passage or teaching a passage. You set it up in light of the Bible story, and people will totally agree with you because it's all Bible, okay? The second thing is you can encourage people in Bible classes or home studies, whatever, to read things that will help them develop some of this narrative. I, I have like a 12-point narrative uh, that I try to use with my students at times to say this is the big, this is the big narrative. These are the things you got to have in mind when you're talking about the Bible's narrative. Now, let's just say you're you're a layperson and you don't have, you're not even a leader. So let's start at the bottom. That one, you're alone, and you can find some friends who can study the Bible together, and you should do this wisely in not pretending like you're the only ones in the church that know how to read the Bible. You should avoid being critical of everybody else who's reading the Bible or not reading the Bible. And over time, allow that group to grow while you're also in communication with the leaders in the church so they know what you're up to. And then I think if you're, let's just say you're a leader in a church, but you're not the pastor. Again, I think it's about finding <laughs> others who will study with you and develop a little bit of a core group that is peaceful toward everyone else in the church, no matter how they read the Bible or don't read the Bible. They're peaceful toward that group and just say, we're going to read the Bible. Uh, we're going to have a group that reads the Bible together once a month. We're going to work on narrative. Anybody who wants to be a part of it, this is what we're going to do. And you're, you're going to try to help the narrative approach to the Bible grow within your church. So I, I'm not for telling everybody that they're reading the Bible wrong, and I'm not for revolution in a church. Uh, there's no reason to ruin a church over this kind of issue and get people mad at one another. Um, these kinds of things are much better done organically and slowly rather than suddenly and forcefully. Have you ever heard stories, received messages back from people of them actually seeing that change? happen well uh yes you're matt right yes uh, this has really changed in the last 30 years in churches all over the united states that I've, I've been connected to and even in the world this has been really big is that more and more people are talking about narrative readings of the bible today as if everybody knows what it is 
and it's no longer controversial. In the early 90s and the late 80s, when this came out, people were pretty nervous, particularly those who were more systematic theology types. I could give names, but I won't. Initials like Wayne Grudem. Um, they, uh, they, uh, they were nervous about this because it meant diminishing the categories that were being used. And it meant that we were going to shift categories. And if you start shifting categories, things change. And a different narrative begins to develop. It's a narrative about the people of God and the world of God, rather than a narrative about me and my sinfulness and my place before God. That is a big shift. But it's not, I don't think it's controversial in very many places anymore. I'm not, I've not seen any pushback on narrative readings of the Bible. Maybe there, it's out there, but I'm not seeing it. How have you seen your pastors, Amanda and Jay, is that right, Amanda and Jay, teach people how to read the Bible as story? I think I'd put it this way. I don't think that there's any change. I think that's how they read the Bible. And here's one reason why, Becky. We're Anglicans. We have a liturgy. So we read the Bible Whichever passage we're focusing on, it's going to be connected usually to an Old Testament narrative text, the Psalm, the Gospel, and an Epistle. So there's almost no way that you cannot see connections between various parts of the Bible. If you put them together in the sermon, you're doing narrative theology. So Chaz told me that we have to keep this whole conversation to under an hour so he can cut it into two 30-minute episodes, and we're at 57 minutes. So um, I know that Renska had more than one question. Do you want to ask one last quick question, Renska? Yeah, I can do that. Um, so if we look at the Bible, we have uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old was written in Hebrew and the New in Greek. Do you use a different approach to beautiful interpretation depending on the original language it's written on, or do we always just start with reading it through research on culture, context, and those kind of things? Um, I'm, I, so in other words, is there a different approach to reading the Bible when it's in Hebrew versus reading it in Greek? Yeah, do you have different principles of interpretation you use when you're drawing from the Old Testament versus the New Testament? big difference is that to read the Old Testament is to read it in the context of the ancient Near East and Semitic languages and Jewish people in Israel, etc. And the New Testament, a lot of it occurs from the Gospels on, from Acts on. A lot of it occurs in the Greco-Roman world. And all of a sudden, we're talking about Rome and we're talking about Greece and Plato and, and the Iliad and, and, uh, and Cicero. And all of a sudden, that changes. So... I think what's important is that we become sensitive to an individual author in his world, in his day. We have, I think we have to do that as much as possible. Now, there are lots of times in the Old Testament, we don't know when a book was written. We don't know. People think they do, they don't. It's almost impossible to prove the, the dates of some of these books. No one knows exactly, I suppose, when. Second Kings or Second Chronicles is written. We know it had to be written before, you know, probably not too far after the end. Um, so I would I would say that we just have to be sensitive to individual authors. The way um, 
is if if you're from Holland, your world is different than Germany, is different than Denmark. And I've been in Denmark and I, I resort to speaking German that they don't think that's such a good idea. And I think, you know, you're right next to one another. They're they're not always friendly neighbors. So um, and France and England and Ireland and Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, these things are all different. And we have to read things in context and reading the Bible, I think, develops the same kind of sensitivity to an individual author in an individual context. Do you have any final thoughts for uh, us as a class as we continue going on um, interpreting the Bible or anything final you want to say about the second edition of Blue Parakeet? Second edition, but I would say that you as students are very lucky to have Becky as your teacher because she's so enthusiastic about what she's doing. Enthusiasm goes a long way. I didn't pay him to say that. <laughs> she's a smart student and she's a very clever communicator. So. I am lucky to have Scott as a teacher. Thank you so much. I, pay, I paid her for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for making the time for us tonight, Scott. I really appreciate that. I've got to finish two verses in Romans 2 today. Awesome. <laughs> Can't wait to read it. Um, have the greatest Tuesday night of your lives. <laughs> you say that? I say that as the benediction um, when I close the service at church. Well, I say Tuesday. Tuesday. I say have the greatest Sunday afternoon of your lives. Okay. I'll see you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Before we go, I wanted to remind you one last time about the Taste of Northern. If you'd be interested in joining us for a class somewhere in the week of February 4th through the 7th, we'd love to have you be a part, whether it's on Northern Live or whether it's in person on campus. You can learn more about this opportunity at seminary.edu taste. Again, that's seminary.edu taste. Thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to joining you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.